Welcome to the BIV Today podcast, where the daily podcast from the Business of Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. This week, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, alongside the Conference Board of Canada, released its Greater Vancouver Economic Scorecard for 2018. The report follows the inaugural scorecard in 2016. Both reports benchmark the region against 19 other global jurisdictions. In total, 38 economic and social indicators were looked at this year, and all 20 regions were given an overall grade from A to D. Greater Vancouver rose two places to rank seventh on the list, and it maintained a solid B grade. Ian Black, president and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, joins us now with a deeper look at our region's competitiveness, attractiveness, and livability. Thanks for joining us. We uh, we get great marks for clean air. You do? We get great marks for democracy. We do. We don't get great marks for a lot of other things. True. Um, what's wrong here? Well, I was raised by British school teachers, and so if I showed up with a B, my parents would say that's an admirable effort, but why wasn't it an A? So for me, Did I'm you rather, meet expectations? Was uh, that the whole thing? That was the objective. Or were you approaching expectations? I was, I was approaching mediocrity in their oh, view. Okay. <laughs> But in this case, uh, not unlike the assessment of my parents on me, they would say, look, this is actually fairly good, but we can do better. And that's really, I think, a lot of the message around the scorecard. We do have great air. We do have a lot of great livability elements about this region. We're culturally very diverse. We have got some of the elements that other cities would love to have, but we are in many ways being held back. Uh, we're our own worst enemy in a couple of ways. Notably right now, it's the obvious elephant in the room is, is housing affordability, which the conference board referred to as severe uh, in, in terms of it being a problem, and also our marginal effective tax rate, which is a fancy economic term that basically says your accountants will give you advice as to where to invest. And if that number is too high, they will say invest somewhere else. We are very, very high on that particular number. On the housing piece, so much has come out from all levels of government over the mm-hmm. past 18 months to try and address this. Is the answer then more needs to be done or do we need to approach it from a different perspective? I don't think we've started to address this at all, to be honest. I think we've started to understand that we need to address it. I think that the various governments have tried some initiatives to start coming to terms with it and to illustrate to the voting public that they are serious about trying to do something. And I think they've done so in good faith, to be very clear. That is not a political criticism. Um, But I think that this is a very complex uh, situation that took 15 years to create. It will not get solved by the stroke of a pen over half an hour in Victoria or Ottawa or at City Hall across the region, any of the city halls across the region. It will have to be an integrated strategy, in my view, uh, that involves the province and the feds and the municipalities agreeing to a particular framework. We are trying to help them develop that framework as we speak. Um, it's it's a scorecard ostensibly for business, mm-hmm. business indices, but it is really a scorecard for the public as oh, well. That's very important. Yes, tells, absolutely. And yeah. and what do you think it tells the public about the livability and about some of the pain points of the city that maybe aren't as evident as, say, the housing affordability issue, the shortfall of transit, those kinds of things? Mm-hmm. What do you think it's telling us about where we live, Ian? Well, I think in some respects it does tell us what we already know, um, in terms, especially in terms of the good stuff. And it's no shock to anyone listening to this podcast that we've got a challenge with housing affordability. I think to the general public outside of the business community, it's an opportunity to learn a little bit about how the rest of the world views us and how we should be viewing the rest of the world and, and how we should be expecting the rest of the world to view us. For example, uh, we often think, uh, because we are Canadian, we often think of our competition being perhaps Calgary, Montreal, Toronto, Halifax, and indeed we've included those cities as part of this 20 cities 
against which we compare ourselves. But the rest of the world is also competing with us, including cities like Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, especially when it comes to port activity and cargo transport by air, which are literally providing hundreds, over 100,000 jobs within five kilometers of the waterfront at family wage supporting levels. So those are pretty big deals, especially if you work on the waterfront and you're listening to this podcast, you kind of stand back and go, oh, yeah, we do have to be aware of what's happening in Amsterdam and in Copenhagen and in London and in Miami. And that's what this report tries to do is to get us to raise our heads up and understand that we are on the international stage now. Um, we certainly have housing prices that reflect that. We now have to bring the rest of our economy and our standards of living to the same levels. What do you think we signal to other Canadian businesses or international businesses when it comes to investment? Well, that's the tricky part here. I mean, we, we have a challenge, an inherent challenge um, in our tax system in British Columbia and the Lower Mainland in particular. And you, I have to be careful here because you don't want it to just totally sound like a political comment. Um, we are held back a great deal by our provincial sales tax. Our provincial sales tax is archaic. There was a flawed attempt, an unsuccessful attempt to harmonize it several years ago, we all remember the drama. But the result of that not being a harmonized tax means that we are a 7% disadvantage to Alberta and to Ontario, who has, and in Alberta's case, they have no sales tax. And in Ontario's case, theirs is harmonized. And what that means is that every little small business, right through to the largest corporation, as they are buying things to use in the process of running their business, they get to deduct that provincial sales tax right away. And that gives them a competitive advantage. So every little company in BC, maybe a distributor of products for uh, kitchen appliances uh, or, or bathroom fixtures, if you're doing house renovation, if you buy that from a distributor in British Columbia, and you could buy the, the, then you should know you can buy the exact same product from a distributor in Ontario, transportation costs notwithstanding, and you will actually pay seven percent less. Yeah, it's um, it's a 2018 scorecard, but of course it depends on the most recent data, and the most recent data in a mm -hmm. lot of cases is 2016 That's data. Right. That was before Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. um, now we have a U.S. president who has uh, greatly overhauled the corporate tax system in the United States. Yeah, um, you know, I, th I think what we can say now is that the effective tax rate for a U.S. business is considerably lower than it is here in British Columbia. Yeah. What does that portend? for us here in Metro Vancouver? Well, the, the marginal effective tax rate, like I said, that is the key indicator that you're, on which your accountants give you advice when you want to add five, 50, 500 more jobs or, or build a 10, 50, $100 million expansion to your business. And we, are, we went from being 10th two years ago to being dead last. We're absolutely last on this. So it's not something that even if you're not an economist, which I am not, um, if you are somebody working in the region listening to this podcast, the reason you have to care about this is because this is a key indicator that those people who carry a checkbook are looking at when they're deciding uh, where to create those jobs and where to invest that money. Because a lot of companies here in the lower mainland, they've got offices in Bellingham or they've got yeah. an extra plant uh, just over in Blaine. So they're saying, well, I got added more 50, 50 more people because business is going great, selling stuff to China, Korea, India, Japan. We need to add 50 more jobs. Where should I put those jobs? And they're saying, oh, I live in White Rock. I'm quite comfortable. Or I live in Richmond. That's great. Um, I could just as easily put those 50 jobs in Bellingham. That's no big deal. I'll still be able to sell to my customers. And it's not about being patriotic. It's, it has nothing to do with that. It's about making sure your company survives in a manner that you can support your own family and put your own kids through college or trade school if that's where they're destined to go. So we can't ignore it is, is the short thing. But I think to be very clear, we are not advocating that we should be chasing the U.S. tax cuts. That's just not reasonable. You cannot ask our provincial or our federal government to take that kind of a haircut on their revenues 
and at the same time be hammering our fist on the table as we are that you have to balance the budget every year. You can't that's you can't have your cake and eat it too. I think there's some things we can do around the edges. Uh, accelerating what they call capital cost write-offs. In other words, if you buy a big piece of equipment, let me write it off in the first year and get the tax break associated with that instead sure. of making me do so over 10 years or 20 years. Depreciating over Absolutely. a lifetime, it seems like, yeah. A special section of the report is dedicated to governance and regional cooperation, yes. how well we work together or mm-hmm. don't work together. Mm-hmm. And many of the issues highlighted are regional issues, housing being one, competitors being another, transportation. What do you think needs to change? Yeah, that's a great a great question. Let me f- frame it for you this way. When we asked the conference board to do this four, uh, two years ago, um, we said study the region as a region. First time in history. Unprecedented. Great. We also then said put a special lens on it. Tell us about the industry clusters where we've got some sort of an advantage that we can leverage as we go taking our story to the rest of the world. And they did that. So this time when we asked them to redo the study, and reassess our, our, our livelihood and, and, and our, our success and livability and economics locally, we said, here's a special lens idea for you. Study the region in terms of democracy and the working of Metro Vancouver as a democratic institution, a level of government, if you will. So they did that and they came up with a, a few things. Well, first of all, they said, no one in the world is really doing it all that great. So for all the shortcomings that we believe exist at Metro Vancouver, and I've got my views on that, I'm sure some of your listeners do as well, um, they said, you know what, it's actually not bad, but there are some things we could definitely do better. Um, we need to start working together across these two 20, 22 municipalities. We don't have common, for example, we don't have a common business license. We don't have a mobile business license so that if you're a plumber who happens to work in Port Coquitlam, you can cross the five minutes into Coquitlam and have a customer there, or the 10 or 15 minutes into Port Moody, A little further gets into Burnaby. Now you're 20 minutes from home. You're in four different municipalities and you need four business licenses in order to serve those customers. That's insane. We've had the legislation in place since about 2007 in this province for a mobile business license within metropolitan regions. It's been done elsewhere in BC wonderfully successfully. We have not done it in the lower mainland. We have to get there. The other one's taxis. I mean, many of your listeners will know of our view on Uber and Lyft and those creative ride sharing options. Part of our assessment on that has been you've got to overhaul the taxi system. You don't have a common taxi regime. So if you catch a cab from where I live in Coquitlam to the airport, the taxi has to deadhead back to the Tri-Cities and can't pick up a fare. That's insane. So we've got to move beyond some of these things. They're really easy fixes. Um, There's some broader ones around economic development and when we take our story to the world trying to attract investment. So we can do that too. One of the things that you're also though recommending is a direct election mm-hmm. of Metro Vancouver's directors. Uh, right. At the moment, of course, they're appointed out of their various councils with a composition on the board. They, of course, re- real, relatively uh, recently uh, stepped into the shoe around uh, retroactive pensions and uh, and pay increases. But what do you think an elected board like that would do in terms of this coherence of speaking for the region. Yeah, that is one of the sticky points. It, it is for me personally. I mean, I've, I've had some dealings with them through a, a couple of different career moves uh, over the years. And it all, it all, it all has always been a concern for me and it vociferously defended by many within the system, incidentally, um, that we have on Metro Vancouver representatives from the different regions that are appointed by the elected officials from those regions. So there's kind of arm's length accountability there, but those arms are awfully long in my view. And we don't have direct representation so that if we want to see a group of people who are tasked with things like taking care of water and sewer and garbage for the region, which is some of the involvement 
that Metro Vancouver has right now. And that makes sense, obviously. I mean, there's some economies of scale opportunities there for sure. Um, but we don't have a direct say in who those people are. And if we don't like their decision, I mean, you mentioned the, the rather controversial move around pay and pensions a few weeks ago. If those decisions had stood and they had not reversed those decisions, there's actually nothing yeah. that any of us can do in the lower mainland to remove that that board of directors, which are all the mayors. It, it has to be done indirectly. Is, it a, is there a corollary, though, where they would have to also, you think, be given some kind of taxation powers? Well, they sort of have that now. Right. I mean, they, they basically have agreements in place with the municipalities to yeah. deliver services. I, you know, you could, I think because, it's a because hybrid we were looking at a, a regional tax, for instance, in the last uh, referendum yep. around uh, transit. Um, should they have a, another level? Should there be a, you know, federal, provincial, regional, municipal tax rate? I'm not sure there needs to be. I think there's some different angles on that. First of all, we have some some of that now. Our gasoline taxes, for example, those sure. are our regional taxes, and there's plenty of them. If you do, do the breakdown, it's it's, it's uh, quite a very high percentage of what you pay for a liter of gasoline. Um, I don't think we need to proactively create more. I mean, we're we're kind of of the car that looks for ways to reduce the amount of taxes being uh, created and reduce the taxing abilities of of uh, municipal bodies um, because they're they're they will use them if they're given right. Um, I think the uh, the bigger question, uh, to be fair and to balance out what I just said, is that we have to be honest about what we expect of our municipalities. I think part of our recommendations in this report is to to look at what is this the terms of reference, what is the scope that you want your municipalities to be chasing. And if, if people like me are going to stand back and say, I want my city taxes to go down, I don't want the, the cities uh, to have more taxing authorities, That I can't say that in a, in, a, in a vacuum. You also have to then say, okay, but what are you wanting them to do or stop doing? And I think that's a healthy conversation that hasn't happened for a while. On the topic of expectations and the few moments we have left across everything in the report, what do you think the next steps should be for the region? Well, I, I do think that we need to we need to really raise the awareness as a business community and through our frankly through our employees as well, so that it's not just business people and not just guys like me who are saying uh, that we've got a problem with with uh, with business taxation. I think that we have to get comfortable with that understanding. Note, like, be honest that we can't we can't not compare ourselves to what's happening in America and the massive tax cuts that Donald Trump is deploying down there. That will affect us, but we have to do so in a measured way. We have to engage our elected officials as business people, not just as business associations, and say, "Look, you need you need help us be a little more creative here. There are some things that we can do to make this more attractive. There are some tinkering around the edges, or there is rather some tinkering around the edges that you can do with the provincial sales tax system to make it a little bit more of a flow through value added." tax without bringing up the the heresy of a you know a harmonized sales tax you don't have to go all the way there so there are some things there but we need our communities to start engaging our elected officials more on it. you you said you know in, that you don't think that much in the report would be a surprise to most people in in this city and and that's fair uh, but when you have to take the report like this and then begin a different kind of dialogue with elected leaders is it useful as a as a, as a you know as a piece of evidence mm-hmm. for you i think it is and i'll tell you for two reasons first of all there's a reason that we engage the conference board of canada i mean this is the most respected deeply skilled 
uh, nonpartisan uh, group of economists think tank in, in the country. Fair. And that there's a reason that they do this work. I mean, we interpret their work. We draw from it um, what what we believe are the priority areas for, for our organization going forward and what we envision for our communities. Um, but let's be clear, their logo is on this document. Uh, the integrity and reliability of this is huge. So I think that's very helpful when you're engaging your public officials to say, look, this has been done by a third party and these people are awfully clever and they actually don't really have a political opinion. The second uh, reason I think it's useful is because, and I'll, I'll draw on the, the marvelous experience of the 2010 Olympic Games and more recently our success uh, in the Olympics with all those gold medals we won just recently. And, and that started in 2010. And it was, it was, the, it was the Strive to Be on the Podium program um, that was started under the Canadian government because we decided as Canadians that we wanted to be better at what we were doing, that being seventh or eighth, which is what we are right now, is not okay, that we're a competitive bunch and we wish to be so at more than just ice hockey. And I think that allows us, when you take relative rankings to our elected officials and say, we can do better, and it's clear we can do better. I think there, there's there's something about that, that pride, that nationalism, whether it's at a civic, provincial, or federal level, begins to kick in as, as we care about our communities. And if we can make decisions to make the economy grow better, have wages go up, housing affordability start to fall back in line, then everybody wins. And that's, that is, a, I think, an agenda that crosses all political stripes. Can Greater Vancouver be on the podium in two years' time, 2020? Not in two years' time, but I believe we can be in 10. Ian, as always, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me here. That's Ian Black, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Stay with us. In a moment, we're going to be back to take a look at Vancouver's global standing from a technology perspective. Every year, Startup Genome evaluates technology startup ecosystems around the globe. This year's global report pays special attention to tech ecosystem strategy and science and offers insight into what makes an ecosystem thrive. J.F. Gauthier is the founder and CEO at Startup Genome. He's also a venture capital advisor, angel investor, and serial entrepreneur himself. And he joins us today with insights from the 2018 Global Startup Ecosystem Report titled Succeeding in the New Era of Technology. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Mr. Gauthier, uh, year over year, how is our understanding of a successful ecosystem for a uh, startup evolving? So, as you know, this is, this is a very complex industry and it's a new, really, industry space or sector. Uh, which really started when we opened the internet for for business, right, in 1995. Uh, and then really we saw the emergence of a completely new way to create economic growth and jobs. So not surprisingly that after only a little more, little more than 20 years, uh, we're we're not fully understanding how, how it functions, how it evolves, how it grows. And more importantly, for governments, how can you affect it? How can you act, take action to accelerate the growth of this of this nascent industry in your city? Mm. So we have been working with now about close to 40 cities in, the, in about 30 countries to together create a knowledge network that allows us to collect data in the way you would, right, with, with for economic data and provide a, not only uh, feedback, really precise, a clear assessment of what's going on, but also understand how how it's evolving and how you can 
drive define policy to improve your ecosystem. So we, I think we're about you know, 60, 70, 80% of the way in understanding how they function and uh, not as far in terms of understanding how can you affect it, how can you improve your ecosystem with action and policies. If we don't entirely know what makes uh, for the success, do we at least know what mistakes have been made along the way here? Are, are there common pitfalls that you can now point to over the evolution of the internet? to say this is where some errors were made? Yeah, so, so we're really talking about not the space making an error, but really as you know, governments and local leaders, private and public, try to improve uh, their ecosystem. Uh, definitely we're seeing, we're starting to see clearly what are things that you should not do and what are things that, that are better and are proven to work. Uh, and we're now also getting it to a point where uh, we've we've captured what has been done in the past and know what works and what doesn't work, or what works better and worse. We're starting to understand context, uh, but now we're at a point where we also need to innovate. Okay, uh, so there were these policies in, in Singapore 20 years ago, and these worked and didn't work. Israel, London, New York has been you know more active. Santiago in Chile, uh, but you know, the, the the situation is evolving continuously. Uh, and as you become one of the leading ecosystem and you have a different context, right, there's also, there's a lot of learning of, of uh, and, and innovative, innovative policies that need to be shaped to face new problems and new opportunities. In Canada, of course, the our federal government is looking at creating five super clusters across the country, which would build on existing hubs of innovation, existing tech ecosystems. As it goes about trying to do this with partners in the public and private spheres, what do you think is really important to do at the early stages of forming something like a super cluster? What sort of policies are really important? Where should funding go? A good question. So the first thing that needs to be done always is to ask yourself where you are, right? Develop a baseline and understand you know, what's been done, what are your, what's your situation along the evolution. And that's something that in the past was not, nobody was able to do. Now we have enough benchmarks, we've studied enough cities, we know how ecosystems develop. So it's not about really focusing in general on what are the most important things to do. It's about really understanding where you are so you can do the right thing at the right time. Right? It's about focus, not dispersing our efforts and money into all types of problems that we think are, are solutions that we think are good, but focusing, just like a startup. Right? You need to start with talking to your customers, understanding their needs before you start coding. But in the supercluster approach, right, in general, is a good approach where you need to know Okay, each supercluster, each nascent ecosystem in each of those sectors or subsectors that the government chose, you need to know, okay, are we at the activation phase, phase one here? We have a goal to get to, you know, New York stage, London stage and tech, right? We're at the goal of creating a lot of jobs and be globally connected and, you know, creating a lot of economic growth. Now, are we at stage one, two, three, or four, because at each stage, the actions are very different. So there's no, there's no one size fits all, and at any time, this is the, the plan, right? We're riding right now 
the book of the playbook for policymakers. By that, as we're we're pursuing this this research and working with many governments, but this is exactly right, the right question, and the right answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah. So for some superclusters in Canada, you have to say, okay, we're very early stage, and at early stage, I need to, you know, bring a lot, of, grow my ecosystem. So I need to create more entrepreneurs. That means I need to create more organizations that support them. I need to connect them. I need to create a sense of community. That's step one when you're early stage. Right? In London, they're past that. They're working on scale-up programs and global connections. Right? This is stage four. Stage three and four are really focused on that. So this is very important to understand. It's a good question, but it's important to understand it depends. So there's no. So there's several bets that have been or programs that have been put in place, and each one needs to really go back to let's assess. Let's define the strategy. Let's prioritize what to do at this time. Let's give ourselves a roadmap, and then let's start acting. I'm sorry, I cannot provide exactly <laughs> the, the, what you do for everyone. Right? But, but it's, it's not, interesting. It's not simple. So I, I, you talk about the focus, the need for focus, and that's very clear. Um, what this supercluster is attempting to focus upon, of course, is digital media. Um, is is digital media a future uh, potential or is it uh, more of a past potential? So, so media, I mean, we don't define in our, in our sub-sectors media as a, you know, a real uh, sub-sector. Uh, but when I hear media, I hear, so, so digital media is one of them. The ad tech also that might be related. Um, that's probably, you probably need digital media, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the focus of Vancouver Supercluster strategy is digital media. So I guess, does that have a lot of growth yeah. potential if that's what we're choosing to focus on? So, so there's, there's a few elements of attractiveness, right? So there's size when you have a big space, which is really interesting. There's always opportunities, even in a mature, large space. Uh, then there's growth rate, right? Is it really growing rapidly? And there's leading indicators that say, okay, are we predicting this is a future areas where investors are pouring more and more money? So we agree in general, this has more potential in the future than even now. When we look at digital media, if you look at our report, you'll see that there's it's a declining sector instead of in terms of investors pouring more and more early stage money in there. But however, it is attractive in terms of it's large, right? It's a large sector. So that means uh, if you're leading, if you're leading ecosystem, if you create a really super cluster in an ecosystem that's large, you'll still make a lot of money, right? If you remember Jack Welch with GE, he said, let's be number one or number two in every business or we exit, right? He didn't say, let's be number one and number two in every business, except if they're going down, we should exit anyway, right? The, the leaders in a big space always do well. So for, for Vancouver, that's strong uh, in that area, it's, it's, it's a good place to invest, even though it's a declining sector, because it's a large sector. So if you look at, at our analysis, you can see it's one of the largest or the largest space, or what we call subsector of technology uh, in, on our map. So it's a large one, and, th- and in every large one, there's a lot of innovation. If you're leading, leading you will really... Uh, 
assess large rents that we say in economic terms, right? Don't do well. So create jobs that create economic growth. So in your assessment, at least in the early assessment of the government strategy, you think that it actually has picked the right place in the right time, roughly speaking? I mean, there's a high potential. And then, then you need to go back to, okay, are we, how strong are we relatively to the others that also are picking this? And let's define a strategy so we make sure that we are among the leaders or their leader, right? Uh, but it's definitely not a bad choice. I mean, it's a large area. Uh, and if, if you're well-positioned, you have the right strategy, you invest aggressively, you can definitely do well in, in this large sector, even though it's a declining sector in terms of early-stage investments. We talk about this quite a bit on the show, Mr. Gautier, and that would be the mindset in Canada that maybe we don't form or can't form anchor companies, world leaders. And that's proven to not be true in certain cases, but we certainly don't punch above our weight, so to speak. Or we get drawn into the United States. Or we do, or we lose them, exactly. How can an ecosystem maybe be engineered by governments, by private companies, to better foster a different mindset that maybe we need a little bit more in Canada? Yeah, so, so you talk about mindsets. I'll, I'll, I'll define that a bit more because it's important. Uh, so I think you're referring to ambition, right? And when I look at Vancouver and the founders with high ambition, it was a lower rate than the global average, right? which is different from what we call ambition, which is a mindset, which is really your attitudes, right? High sense of initiation, breath for a CEO or founder is important. And, and not having high depth where we do, you spend too much time doing things and refining them in an area of uncertainty like technology. You need to act quickly as a leader, right? So mindset, when I look at mindset, you know, everywhere in the world as, as entrepreneurs that have the right mindset, the right attitude, and some that don't, and you can change it through coaching and also events and mentorships, right, shape you uh, as a leader to be really high initiation. Start things and do it. Make decisions quickly. Don't spend too much time trying to overstudy something where you, you don't have any good data in the first place. But when we switch to ambition, right, uh, when I did put a, the report for Wa- on Waterloo 2015, uh, you know, and we went early on. I was saying, you know, I think that there's a lack of ambition in Canada and Canadians, right? So we exit early because of ambition. That was a hypothesis. But I'm Canadian, right? And I have very, very high ambitions. <laughs> so I resented that comment. I'm like, I don't think I don't think that's true, but you know, I don't know how founders. But you have to remember that you know, founders, there's you know, in the top ecosystem we study, there's only I don't know, in, in Vancouver, 1,900 or 20-something, 2,000 startups. And in Vancouver, about 1,000. I'm in Toronto, about 2,000. In Vancouver, 1,000. In Montreal, about 1,000. Maybe you multiply that by two for all the innovation sectors. That's really an estimate for tech. So let's say there's, you know, in those four or five studies, the cities we study with Edmonton now, maybe there's 10,000 startups. Right, with two funders, 2.5 funders on average. So we're talking about 25,000 founders, right? Yeah. And they're not representative of the population, right? These people, I know them, they have an ambition. They look at Zuckerberg and like, me too, I'm going to be the best in the world, right? So ambition is usually not, not the problem. 
But one of the issues is context also, expectations of your community. What do we believe we can do, right? And this is difficult to change. What we've, we've shown is that in, you move to San Francisco and suddenly you add a zero to your goal. Right? You say, I want to build a billion-dollar company here in Barcelona or Vancouver. And then you move to San Francisco and you look around and like, no, no, I want to build a $10 billion company. <laughs> Everybody is doing it. I can do it too here. Right? So this ambition grows. And, and what is your goal? What is your end goal really changes as the ecosystem has more and more success around you and you're part of this community and you get excited and say, yeah, we can do it, right? And this is in process of happening in Canada, right? Yeah. There's some big success like Shopify is a good example, so a good role model to say, wow, we can build a leading company in the world and it's huge and there's Kit and there's Slack and so we're, we're, we're starting to change and that's important and ambition is growing. So for governments, it's really about investing into building the ecosystem, right? It's not about trying to change people and tell them what to do. Of course not. And, and our leaders, we have in Canada, really play their role seriously. I work with a lot of them. Uh, and I know, I know they know, right? And now we're trying to help the community. What is lacking in the community that I can help them do? And one of those things, you were talking about moving to, to the U.S. or losing people to the U.S., People move because they think they can have more success in the U.S., right? And because yeah, we lack resources, right? We lack mentors. We lack success stories. We lack organizations that support us, right? But there's been a lot of investment, so we're getting better and better. And, and you can't just go from A to Z as a government, as a leader, and say, we'll give them 10 times more organizations to support them. That yeah. would not be helpful, right? We over investments. So it, it is about providing you know, mentorship programs, corporate innovation programs, injecting money into funding as the ecosystem grows so that people feel supported, they feel like they can do it, they have access to local resources at the right rate at the right time so that they stay and they get excited that we're building a more and more increasingly successful community. And that's happening in Vancouver in a big, big time. Yeah, it's interesting in, in studying and and being a journalist around, uh, say, um, popular culture and, and watching um, what the industry has been able to do over the last, say, 30 years uh, by being a neighbor of the United States and hearing the complaint that the United States inundates Canadian culture and, and affects it unduly. Um, I've never really, yeah. I've never accepted that. I always thought that actually it, it, it worked to the Canadian's advantage to be in the backyard of America. Can you assess what it's been like, do you think, for Canadians to be in the backyard of this extremely ambitious, very aggressive market like America? And, and has it been more of a help or a hindrance for us? Yeah, this is, this is, this is a very important issue. And so uh, I invite people to read the Waterloo Report because we talked extensively about that. Uh, but also the first thing to understand is that it's not the U.S. versus us, right? Silicon Valley is doing great, and you know Philadelphia, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, which is I think the fourth or fifth largest economy in the U.S. There's nowhere to be found on the tech space, right? Vancouver is way ahead of you know 75 percent, 80 percent of American cities, right? So, or, or probably a lot more than that, probably 90, 95 percent of American cities Vancouver is ahead of, right? So it's not, it's not a national issue, right? 
there's high ambition in San Francisco in tech, and there's super low ambition in Dallas in tech, right? And, and, and Vancouver is a much higher on this ambition point. So, so as a city, we have different, we have cultures, and culture changes as the tech community, those 2,000, 3,000 founders with their, you know, 10,000, 20,000 engineers working with them and growth hackers, they have their own culture. And when I saw people arriving in my office three, four years ago from Malaysia, in the middle of the discussion, I looked around and I thought, wow, these could all be living in the Bay Area. They would speak the same way, right? People from the Bay Area were in my office last week, spoke the same way, the same terms, right? There's really a global culture of the startup and the the, the startup revolution is, is a global culture. But for Canada, in terms of having a neighbor, it's, it's a, an advantage. But one thing that we've put our finger on is that there's also an illusion that we, we're similar enough that I don't really need to hire and to go to America to understand the needs of the consumer and the enterprises. I don't need a VP sales with America to really someone who is in the network, right? who can knock on door because they've been knocking at those doors for 20 years and then you can do it for the startup, right? So there's an illusion that we have a similar culture because we speak English and we're, we, have a, we have a similar culture, but in sales right, and in business, we don't have the similar culture in Canada. And right? as you said, you know, Amer- in America, it's much more aggressive, sales more aggressive. You talk to someone, they always say they're number one in the world. As Canadians, we don't do that, right? So we have great engineers, but in commercialization, we're not as good, right? So, so what Tel Aviv does, and that's the example we, we always give, is that they don't they don't look at their local market and say it's like the U.S. They're like, we don't understand the U.S. market. Let's fly there. And when I hire, when I build my sales and marketing, let's hire Americans because they understand the market better than we do, right? They don't have an accent, right? And they start really organically growing sales and marketing in the U.S. with no illusion to have a similar culture and they can do it from Tel Aviv. So Canada has a lot to learn from that to say, okay, yeah, we can have a sales office in Vancouver, but, you know, in Vancouver, we don't have 100 Fortune 1000 companies to pitch to as a B2B company. I don't have American consumers next to me from my sales and marketing that intrinsically understand the behavior of of Los Angeles, right? What's going on right now, right? So there's hesitation oftentimes, like a CEO founder say, I want my VP sales to sit, sit next to me, right? Yeah, but really you want your VP sales to sit next to your customers, right? So, so it's a benefit that it's very close, but we cannot bet on, like it's close enough, I don't need to actually open an office in New York, San Francisco, and other places. No, you, you do, right? that Tel Aviv is successful because they do. And yes, there's some leakages, but what you want to do is the best thing for your business, not trying to say, hey, let's concentrate everything in Canada. Right? Let's do R&D, let's develop a product from Canada, but let's not be afraid to also set up in the U.S. like, you know, like, like Israelis and German and U.K. startups do. Right? As they grow, they go to the U.S. and set up business. Right. Well, it's a it's a fascinating report. And thank you so much for joining us on the show to provide some analysis. There's a lot in the report and we covered some of it. But thanks for your perspective. You're welcome.
Good talking to you. That's J.F. Gauthier. He's the founder and CEO of Startup Genome, which issued recently its Global Startup Ecosystem Report for 2018. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for joining us on BIV Today. Hope you'll subscribe and find past episodes on iTunes and at BIV.com, our website. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back on Monday. 